listening to the Rainmaking Podcast. Hosted by high-stakes headhunter, author, and professional speaker, Scott Love. Hi, this is Scott Love, and thanks for joining me on the Rainmaking Podcast. On some of our shows, they're going to be just for people in the legal community. And I say this because if you're not, it won't apply to you. But others, I'm interviewing guests that do only consult to the legal community, but their content relates to everybody who's in the business of getting business. And that's one of our guest speakers and guests that we have today, Jay Harrington. He and his colleague, Tom Nixon, both produce a podcast called The Thought Leadership Project. Now, if you're in the business of getting business, that's something you need to check out. We'll put his link to his podcast on the show notes. Today, we're talking about how to scale your business. So even if you're not in legal, this is something that's still going to apply to you because the concepts obviously are malleable and can apply to different businesses. Let me tell you about Jay. Jay Harrington, he's a business coach and trainer. He's a consultant to lawyers and law firms, and he's the founder and president of Harrington Communications. That is a leading thought leadership marketing agency for law firms. He is the host of the Thought Leadership Project podcast, and he's the author of three books, The Productivity Pivot, One of a Kind Lawyer, and The Essential Associate. Jay formerly practiced law at Skadden and Foley, and he also founded and ran a boutique corporate restructuring law firm and is a graduate of the University of Michigan Law School. I hope you get some great ideas from my interview with Jay today. Hey, this is Scott Love. Thanks for joining me on the Rainmaking Podcast. I've got our guest today, Jay Harrington. Today, we're talking about using scale tactics to grow your practice to a million and beyond. And Jay, thanks for joining me on the show today. Scott, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah, and I'm a fan of what you and your colleague do in, within your consulting practice. I think you've got some great content on LinkedIn. But tell everybody about your background when you joined the career world. What did you start at? What did you do? And how did you come to what you're doing today? Yeah, so I went straight through from undergrad to law school. I went to University of Michigan Law School, graduated from there in 2001, and had done a summer associate gig at Skadden Arps's uh, Chicago office, and I joined them as a first-year associate. So I was there in Chicago practicing for a number of years. Uh, my wife and I ended up moving back to the Detroit area, where I joined a fairly new office for Foley and Lardner in Detroit at the time. I was doing corporate restructuring work at both of those firms. And then after about seven years of practicing law, I struck out on my own. I, I hung a shingle. I had a, one partner who, luckily enough, was one of my best friends and, and an accomplished lawyer. And we, we uh, kind of did our own thing for about three years. And at that point, I had also been running my business that I focus on now, which is a consultancy, as you mentioned, Scott, uh, focused primarily on lawyers and law firms and other professionals. And I've been doing coaching, training, consulting, and and other forms of services for primarily lawyers ever since. So yeah, I I got into the practice of law, enjoyed it. I really liked the firms I worked at. I liked having my own thing. But at some point I decided, you know, partly from a lifestyle standpoint, partly from an intellectual curiosity standpoint. I just wanted a, a little bit of a different approach. So now I, I work with lawyers still, but in a different capacity. That's great. I like the ideas that you have. I think that the expertise you have from big law and small law, and you've done it, you're teaching it. It's really exciting to read some of the things that you write because that fits squarely with what I do in recruiting partners from big law firms. And those that are successful have learned that they need to be thinking of client development. They need to have that top of mind. So tell me about scale. When you talk about 
the idea of scale. It's commonly used to describe how businesses grow in the tech world and the startup world. What does that mean for those in professional services and even in the legal world? What does that mean for them to kind of build scale within their businesses? So this is an important subject, and I think it's one that, you know, hopefully many lawyers bump up against at some point in their career, because it means that they're feeling really stretched too thin, and they, they're sort of limited by their capacity. And I first kind of came upon the concept of scale in the practice of law when I was a young lawyer at Skadden and was struggling to keep my, my head above water, just handling the relatively discrete tasks I had in chapter in a chapter 11 case I was working on and it led me I, I couldn't imagine at the time as I was as I was watching our practice group leader who was not only just you know working on this case but also leading several others like them these were multi-billion dollar chapter 11 restructuring cases right. and, and how he was how he was juggling all of that and doing so effectively and you know what I came to realize was that he wasn't actually doing that, what he was doing in terms of running all of those cases, at least not in the ways that I had assumed. He certainly was involved at a high level, but he primarily was relying upon teams of other lawyers to run the day-to-day operations. And he had processes in place which allowed him to stay informed along the way. So he was sort of acting as a good general and allowing his lieutenants to kind of take and run with the strategies that he had put in place. So this approach, of course, allowed him to have more capacity to do what he did best, which was to pursue even more new business. So in short, he was working on his practice and not in his practice, certainly not immersed in it to the point where he was, he was in the weeds and he was getting bogged down. And he was putting systems in place that allowed good people, um, talented people within the firm, to handle the day-to-day, which allowed him to operate more above the fray. So, you know, he scaled, essentially. And, you know, like you said, Scott, most times we think about the concept of scale in, in the context of business. And in that context, you know, if we look at some business school definitions, it's, it's basically the idea of taking steps to add new revenue at a rate faster than the expenditure of new costs. Right, or right. in other words, you know, achieving a business achieving scale allows them to take on more work while maintaining or even increasing efficiency. Uh, so if we think about it in the context of the practice of law, what, what that means, it, it works largely the same way. It's if you think about yourself as an individual lawyer, if you think about your costs as your time, which I think is the appropriate analogy here, if your ability to take on a new client is dependent upon your ability to simply bill more hours, then your practice can't scale. Right. So no matter how hard you work, this approach can only take you so far. So I think if you, if you want to go farther, if you want to get to that million dollar plus level, many people can get to that level simply just grinding away and doing it all on their own. But you can't, if you want to go beyond that, you can't think of in terms of squeezing more productivity out of yourself, you, you've got to rise above your own limitations by creating systems, building teams, and um, having processes in place that allow you to scale. You know, I think that's interesting. What I've seen in working with big law firms, I've seen it's, it's you could kind of put it into three different buckets. One of them is by building a team, like what you talked about. The other one is by joining a firm or being in a firm where the network itself gives them leverage, where now they can scale it, not just to associates, but to other partners. And then even some partners I've seen, they, they work on contingency cases, even in big traditional AMLAW 100 firms, where they've got a few opportunities for some pretty big shots that if they win the case, especially in the IP space, they can hit a home run. 
Do, do you think that would kind of be an accurate description of, of how partners or, or anybody really could scale their business? Absolutely. I think those are all spot on. And I particularly like, I mean, if for, for many lawyers, if, if you're at a, you know, a traditional corporate law firm, maybe the, the non-contingency, I mean, I know they do contingency work as well, but oftentimes we think about that in the plaintiff's context, but right, right. at the traditional corporate law firm, that idea of, of becoming the true trusted advisor who essentially is serving as the conduit to the firm, not to your own individual discrete practice is really key. So that, you know, thinking about cross-selling, thinking about introducing clients to all of the capabilities of your firm and not just your own is really effective. I mean, I, I can think of one person who I've worked with and, and know fairly well who has a very significant practice, you know, multi-million dollar practice. And, and that's his philosophy. That's how he sees himself. And, and interestingly, he, you know, most firms have a minimum billable hour requirement. What he does is he sets for himself a maximum billable hour requirement because he knows the more hours he's billing on legal work, the less opportunity he has to serve in that conduit to the firm role, which allows him to grow his practice significantly. Well, like what you said about the example you gave of that one attorney that he was able to build his practice and scale it with associates and other help so that he could pursue more business development. And it's almost like that once you get to a phase of critical mass, now you've got the business coming in. Now you've actually got more time that you can invest in that client development. It's almost like your reputation itself is a scalable asset that now as you spend time writing articles, getting published, speaking at conferences, being a master of ceremonies, and becoming the one that gets the call, it's almost like that time that you're spending itself gives you even greater scale because now you're starting to get the call instead of having to spend time pursuing those relationships. What, what do you think about that concept? Love it. Yeah, that's, it's the idea that the more you do this, uh, there's a, if you're familiar with you know, the concept of the flywheel effect in Jim Collins' book, yeah, uh, sure. Good, Great. Yeah, it's the same idea here. Once you get that flywheel turning, you start to generate those opportunities, which increase your visibility, which, you know, increase your authority and, and more business, more inbound business starts coming in, more inbound opportunities um, start rolling in. And, you know, that that work you're doing, especially early on, to to continue to put yourself out there allows you to kind of create separation from from others. And there's a compounding return on that over time, just as there is with getting started on a 401k plan, you know, as a young person. And I, I even think even in terms of recruiting people to your team, when they see that, well, you've got a cadre of associates or other colleagues that are helping you, you've got a reputation. Well, that's the team I want to join. I think that even helps in that regard as well. Yeah. I mean, you look at firms that have recruited extremely well, like Kirkland and Ellis, for example. I mean, I think of in their terms of the restructuring group, um, for one. I mean, they they have great leadership. They have a real strategic vision. Jamie Sprayregan has run a outstanding department there. Uh, they, you know, they're getting major cases and they're and they're they're doing that because, you know, their department has many skilled individuals who all can be quarterbacking these massive cases, or, or many of them can serve in that role, not just one person. And that's because they have those systems in place. And, and it, recruitment is a big part of that. Right, absolutely. Well, well, let me kind of get back on the different ways that people can scale. You've identified four key areas that lawyers and those in professional services can focus on to achieve scale. The first that you mentioned is narrowing the focus of your practice. What, what do you think that means? And how do you think that helps people to scale? Well, this is really a first step, I think, where it allows you to really gain traction uh, it, early on, say, in your in your 
legal career, you know, you're someone who is at the point where they're starting to develop new business. And it sounds counterintuitive sometimes, but actually narrowing your focus as opposed to trying to be all things to all people creates many more opportunities. And so what we mean when we talk about narrowing focus, if you think about an XY axis where, you know, on the X axis, uh, you would list all the various practice areas that you might have some experience in. And then on the Y axis, all of the industries perhaps you've served. The idea is to find, you know, that point between the axes where they intersect and you identify, you know, a, a narrow focus rather than just trying to serve everyone. And the reason that that is important from a scaling standpoint is that when you have a narrow focus, it means you're dealing with the same types of clients who are dealing with similar types of situations or issues over and over. And, and that allows you to kind of really gain deep expertise in, in an area serving a client and start to be perceived as an expert, which is, of course, you know, one of the pillars of developing new business. Um, so that's really the foundation. It's dealing with those common scenarios. And then that allows you to create the systems and processes because you're dealing with those similar situations that start to enable you to achieve some scale. If you're going in a, in a bunch of different directions, scale's not possible. And you're going to be, you're going to have a really hard time. You're going to feel scattered. You're going to have a hard time building those systems. And in the way that some of that works is that if you think about issues like marketing, marketing becomes far easier once you have a narrow focus because you're able to specifically identify your target market. You think about where they spend their time and attention and you can inject yourself into that ecosystem, again, through your writing, your speaking, your networking, et cetera. It helps position you as an expert when you have narrow focus. You know, it's really one of the only ways that you can create some meaningful differentiation and position yourself effectively relative to your competitors. So narrow focus is a is a way to reduce or eliminate the competition as you narrow in on the market you're focused on. It also allows you in that respect to raise rates. You know, experts are able to charge higher fees which in turn allows you to create more margin time for yourself to work on your practice to not in your practice, which of course is critical when we're talking about scale. Right. Um, just a couple additional things. I mean, it allows you to expand the geographic scope of your practice. Expertise travels. I mean, if you think about, you know, the, the analogy to the medical field is often used where, you know, people will, when they have a, a minor health issue, will go to their primary care physician. But if you have a major issue, they'll fly across the country or around the world to get it dealt with. And the same principle applies in legal services as well. So if you narrow your focus, you're no longer limited to your immediate geographic radius for, you know, your, your market, essentially, you know, the, the nation and the world become your marketplace, the more you narrow your focus. And then I think it also helps in the sense that it, it reduces the cost of sale. And what I mean by that is, you know, you're, when you're seen as a unique asset to clients and not simply a, another commodity, you know, you don't have to necessarily get involved in long pitches or participate in RF, RFP processes as much. Clients seek you out. So the idea is, you know, narrow your focus as you grow and scale your practice. You're not limited to that narrow focus or that niche. Uh, you can expand out. Think about it in terms of the way a you know a business develops a minimum viable product, something to go to market with and gain traction. And then once you have that traction, then you can you can expand out into other areas. Essentially, apply the same systems and processes you did to your first narrowly focused niche area, and then scale from there. That's great. So so let me ask you this then, 
I really like the ideas that you've shared and I like the strategy that you have and the way you think. Let's say there's a professional listening to this that has maybe five different areas that he or she could move into if they want to develop a niche and develop that deep expertise that, like you mentioned, what would you advise that person? How would you advise for them to identify the one that has the highest likelihood of bearing fruit? Yeah, I mean, here, you know, there's a bit, maybe a bit of art and a bit of science. Um, some of it's intuitive. And, and the intuitive part of it is you need to, if you really want to if, and going to devote what's necessary to build a significant practice into something, um, you have to have some some interest, right? You have to like the types of clients that that you're thinking about working with. You have to like the type of work. And you also want, if you're thinking about drawing a Venn diagram, you also want to make sure that you're, you have significant expertise that, or the ability to develop that expertise that aligns with, you know, your interests. So your interests and expertise should align. And then the third circle on the Venn diagram would be market opportunity. So this gets a little bit more, you know, science-based where you're evaluating, is this a growing market? Is it a declining market? Do I have relationships with other people who are influential within that market who I, that I can lean upon? These are some of the ways to think about this, uh, Scott. You know, what, what other capabilities does my firm have in these areas? Are there resources that can support me as I think about growing and scaling my practice? So uh, these are some of the questions you want to ask yourself, but ultimately it comes down to a decision of you need to make a decision. And that's where it gets hard for many lawyers because they feel like by narrowing, they're limiting their opportunity, not expanding it. And ultimately, it just comes down to having the courage to decide. But you want to do some of that forethought before doing so. Right. And, and one thing I'm going to say right now, Jay, I think that we're going to probably have you on as a part two in terms of scale, just because I don't want to do a, a brush over on these topics here. I want to kind of go a little bit deeper so let's kind of talk a little bit more about this, and then we'll end our show that we're recording today, and then schedule a time for you to come back, and we'll do part two, just because I think you've got some great ideas here, and I, and I want to go a little bit deeper on each of these points. Sounds so, great. Good. So let me just pose this scenario. Let's say somebody decides that they've, they've done their analysis, they've uh, done the exercises that you've mentioned, and I can see them just taking pen to paper, listening to the ideas that you have, putting them into play. And now they're seeing that it's starting to bear fruit. What do you think they should be looking for? Let's say six months into choosing their niche. Are there any indicators that are telling them that this is a good decision or a bad decision? What would you suggest that person does? Yeah, right. So what are the metrics that can help to bolster and support the notion that you made the right decision in terms of, of, of your niche area or narrow focus area? So there's a few. I mean, it's somewhat, it depends on, on what you're doing to, because there's, there's certain sort of long game or long-term tactics that you're probably employing. Like when you choose a, a narrow focus, you know, you need to have some sort of marketing plan and, and marketing activity around that. So, you know, you should be thinking about like publishing thought leadership content in the areas where the audience or the target market you're focused on spends their time and attention. So it really, if I could take just one step back, yeah, the sure. first thing, yeah, so in this, this might be helpful for people to think about, and we touched upon this, but once you determine what your narrow area of focus is, so let's just say, let's use an example. Let's say you're, you're a lawyer in, in Michigan or, or Detroit. Obviously, the automotive industry is, is a major market here, and you do commercial litigation work with a specialty on, on dealing with uniform commercial uh, code issues. So 
you want to be able to identify your ideal client. In this case, that might be general counsel or in-house counsel at those tier one to tier three auto suppliers within the market you've decided to focus on. Um, and once you do that, your marketing plan falls into place. You then have a sense of what websites, trade journals, other forms of publications that your audience spends its time and attention on. You know what trade associations they're members of. When we have conferences again, you'll know which ones they attend. You can then really inject yourself, as, as I mentioned previously, into the conversation, the ecosystem within which your target market is also a part of. So you can, you can essentially become a, a trusted insider in that group rather than, than just an outsider who's trying to pitch for new business. And that really matters. So once you start taking activity or doing activities with, uh, aligned with your marketing plan, um, some of the things you'll start to see are, are things like um, your network will start to grow uh, within that target market. You will get Things like speaking opportunities and publishing opportunities as you start to become uh, more of a thought leader in that space, as you focus your thought leadership content within that target market, people will start to take note of that. Reporters might start reaching out to you for comment as an expert source in that area. And ideally, you'll have a much easier time connecting with and potentially, you know, having uh, business development conversations with, with those in that area. Within six months, I would hope that you would also be really starting to see an increase in those inbound leads that are coming your way as the market starts to perceive you as someone who specializes in this area and as an expert in that area because you're just popping up on their radar screen more frequently. And as a result, you're top of mind when an opportunity arises. So those are some of the metrics. I would hope, you know, revenue would start to go up in that area that's aligned with your niche. Now, I would just mention one more thing on this, Scott, as for someone who is still, you know, sort of cautious and, and a little bit skeptical about pursuing a narrow focus. When you, when at least certainly when you're just getting started, uh, you know, say you're six months in, your narrow focus reflects what work you're pursuing, not necessarily what work you're doing. So it's a it's a transition. You're going to probably still be doing work outside of your narrow focus for yeah. for at least a bit of time. That's really but good. but your energy around your marketing and business development should be in that area. Well, Jay, I I think that you have some fantastic ideas. I think you've got some rock solid content. We're going to end our show now and then have you back on in the next one. But before we do that, and we'll have you do the five action steps at the end of our next show, but tell everybody listening what the work is that you do that can benefit them. And we're going to put all your information on the show notes. But if people hear what you're saying and they want to reach out to you, tell them about what, what you can offer them. Yeah, sure. So I think most relevant for probably your audience, Scott, in terms of you know lawyers and other professionals who are looking to grow their business is I do individual coaching for lawyers. I do group training for lawyers as well. Um, all of this is done through my agency, Harrington Communications, which you can find at hcommunications.biz. I also have it's something I'm launching early next year, Scott. And if you'll indulge me, I'll just mention it briefly, but it's, sure. it's called Quadrant 2 Academy. Um, it's actually geared for the people who might be interested in this discussion, actually. It's all about a period of time of training, coaching, and there's a mastermind component to it as well, where up to 20 lawyers are going to participate in a program to 
enable them to learn the principles of scale and start implementing those principles within their practice. So those are some of the things that I'm working on. If, if you'd like to learn more about me, I've written a few books. You can find those on my website or on Amazon. And uh, I'm also very active on LinkedIn, as you mentioned earlier, Scott. So That's I appreciate great. that. Well, Jay, thanks for being on the show today. I can't wait to have you back on for the next one. We're going to continue our conversation and we'll put all the links and even links to your book on the show notes. So anybody listening, you can go right there and connect with Jay. And Jay will be talking again real soon. Thanks for being on the show today. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Rainmaking Podcast. For more information about our recruiting services for international law firms, visit our website at attorneysearchgroup.com. To inquire about having Scott speak at your next convention, conference, sales meeting, or executive retreat, visit therainmakingpodcast.com.